What's up, everyone, and welcome to Roots of Humanity, a podcast that celebrates the beautiful people and culture of our world. My name is Drew Binsky. I'm a world traveler and content creator who has spent the past 12 years traveling to all 197 countries in the world. In episode 24 of Roots of Humanity, I talked to Charles Hoskinson about his roots and cryptocurrency. As a serial entrepreneur, Charles was a co-founder of the Ethereum blockchain platform, as well as Cardano and the blockchain engineering company Input Output Global Inc. What was it like to be at the center of the early days of Bitcoin? Why is it that so many people in the crypto world are fond of traveling? At 72 countries visited, Charles is catching up to me quickly. He shares his collection of Babylonian tablets, and we talk about Vietnam, Japan, the Philippines, and Hawaii, where Charles was born. So if you grew up in the 80s and 90s in Maui, it's like growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, elsewhere. Tune in to hear about his inspirational melting pot roots from Nazi fighting ancestors in Norway to southern Italy and their eventual immigration to New York and Montana. And of course, get some amazing insider information on the creation of Ethereum and Cardano. Thanks for tuning in and let's get into it. Charles, what's going on, man? It's good to see you, Drew. How you been? I've been good. We met briefly, what, a few months ago in Austin at a... At Consensus, yeah. At Consensus. Yeah, I, I recall, I recall. It was a lot of fun seeing you there, and uh, I think you're the only person I've met who's been to more countries than me. That is what you told me. Uh, that's uh, How many have you been to? Over, well over 100, like 150 or something? No, 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 72. 72, sorry, my, my memory. That's still pretty good, though. I mean, I imagine you'll get to 150 pretty soon if you keep traveling. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, it's been uh, it's been an interesting eight years. You know, the, the cryptocurrency space has turned me into quite the world traveler. In fact, uh, I just got back from Mongolia, Italy, Greece, Spain and Canada all in a three week period. That's awesome. I'm heading to Greece next week. Where were you in Greece? Just Athens this time. I've been all around Greece, though. And, you know, I've been to the islands. and But uh, Athens is a lot of fun. Uh, you know, you get to go see the Acropolis and spend some time at the Parthenon, go see the Temple of the Muses, these types of things. Absolutely. I'll be doing that with my wife in just a couple of days. Where did you go in Mongolia? So I've been Mongolia many times. Uh, this time around, I was in Ulaanbaatar, the, uh, the capital. And then I went south to the Kobe Desert and I saw the Flaming Cliffs for the first time, which was a really cool area. And then uh, after the Flaming Cliffs, I went over to uh, Uji, which is in the west side of the country. And that's where the Kazakh uh, eagle hunters live. And I spent some time there hanging out with them and in Agar and doing that whole thing which was crazy because, you know, the desert's really hot and then you go out to the mountains and it's really cold and wet and schmarmy. And, and it's like, wow, <laughs> this is, I did not, I didn't, I didn't properly pack for this trip. <laughs> Mongolia is a country that you could spend a year in and you could still not even see a fourth of the country. It's just like, it's huge and has every climate, every, so many different cultures, languages. It's just one of those, it's kind of like, Iran, I, I spent a lot of time in Iran and India, both of those countries. It's like, anytime you just change a province, it's, everything's different. So that, that's really cool. So I've always wanted to go to Iran, you know, because I wanted to see the Yachtjals, uh, those little things they have to, to make ice. So what was your experience like uh, dealing with the old Persian Empire? I spent six weeks in Iran on two different trips. Absolutely love it. On my most recent trip, I was in the southeastern part in a place called Balochistan, which, which borders back Pakistan. And so there's a town called Chabahar, which is the, the most incredible place with these rural markets and amazing people, really hospitable. And they wear these traditional outfits that you only see in Pakistan. And the language is, is the same in Pakistan. So it's just like a total like mindfuck where you're like in Iran, but it's like, wait, is this Pakistan or Iran? That was cool. But obviously Tehran is beautiful. They don't speak Farsi there? 
Nope, nope, they do not speak Farsi. Wow. If you speak Farsi to them, they will look at you like, and they have much darker skin, just like, you know, Pakistanis. And, you know, obviously, the you know, Tehran is beautiful and Shiraz and Esfahan. Esfahan's like the most historical city with all these beautiful mosques and monuments and uh, mausoleums. And I don't know, if you like travel and history, and which I'm sure you like both, Iran is a fascinating place. I'm sure it's on your list. It is on the list. Uh, unfortunately, it's a little difficult to travel there, as you know. Uh, for U.S. citizens, but uh, I definitely, I definitely would like to go at some arbitrary point. And same for Iraq. I actually collect Babylonian tablets. So I have some Do here. Do you? Oh, I was in Babylon last year. It was wonderful. I was actually in Babylon. In, in like cuneiform. Yeah. So. Oh, that's so cool. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, so I, I have tablets and all kinds of things and artifacts, and I've always wanted to go to the gates of the old, uh, the old Babylon city. So what is Babylon like? It is beautiful. So you, you show up. I mean, Iraq, all the towns outside of Baghdad, like all the smaller towns are kind of deserted and they're not too populated. So Baghdad is you just kind of drive for a while and all of a sudden you end up at this big blue gate. It's actually a replica of the original Babylon gate. The original one is in some museum in Europe somewhere, I think. But it looks exactly like the old one. And you have a tour, an English speaking tour guide and you walk in and you just, you keep going like down and down and down because they keep excavating. And they said like only 10% of Babylon is actually above ground. Still, wow. they have to keep going down to find more artifacts, more hieroglyphics, more old forks and spoons that these guys used to, to use in these like old baths that they used to. It's just the most mind blowing thing, but uh, lots of ruins. Um, it's it's an absolutely mind blowing. And then there's uh, right on, there's a huge hill on the outside and Saddam Hussein built one of his old palaces a huge palace. I mean, I don't know, it takes 15 minutes just to walk half of it. Uh, and it's circling the entire Babylon. So that was, it's kind of fascinating. But yeah, I highly recommend Iraq. Iraq is much easier to enter with the US passport. Now it's visa free. Anytime you have questions about if you can enter a place or how to get in, or if you need a local fixer, I've been doing right. this for nine years, so I can definitely <laughs> put you in right. You're kind of the guy for, uh, for all this. Yeah, actually, this year I also went to Israel, Jordan, and uh, Dubai. That that was as uh, close as I got to Iraq and uh, in Iran. Jordan was a lot of fun. It was great to see Petra. And have you ever been to Wadi Rum? I have been to Wadi Rum. Yep, beautiful. What did you think of the night sky? It's absolutely amazing. It's just pristine, beautiful. I also love Jordanian people. I think it's probably the most stable, safest country in all the Middle East. It's, I mean. It's so funny that like Americans and, and other people, when they hear Middle East, they're just like, oh my God, so scary, so dangerous. Jordan is absolutely perfect. I mean, it's great. Petra's wonderful too. I spent, I actually slept overnight, like right outside of Petra. So I got the full experience there. Did you too? Uh, yeah, I, I slept in the hotel that was uh, walking distance uh, from, uh, from Petra. Did you eat at the, uh, the little cave bar that they have there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. It's 100 degrees outside and it's, and it's like 50 degrees inside the cave bar. Speaking of 100 degrees, so I actually was just in Kuwait and I visited the world's hottest city, which is called Jahra. It's in Kuwait. And I went on the hottest day of the year, which was August 1st. I just got back. It was 134 degrees Fahrenheit or 56 Celsius when I was there. And wow. I slept outside with the Bedouins uh, for a video. I haven't posted the video yet, but it was the most like spiritual and most off-putting and disturbing place I've ever been because like even sleeping outside it's still like 1 15 at night so you're trying to just to like you're just trying to breathe when you fall asleep um wow. but yeah the the sun is just absolutely scorching and and somehow people are still you know working outside and and living so that was interesting yeah I, do, I don't understand how you can work in that kind of temperature it makes no sense so uh, listen we can keep talking about travel and we will we'll come back to it but I want to know a little bit more about yourself so where are you originally from uh we'll start there 
Uh, so I was originally born in Hawaii. I was born on the island of Maui. My grandfather delivered me. Uh, uh, he was a OBGYN there. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s in, uh, in Hawaii. And Maui's kind of in a time warp. Uh, so uh, so if you grew up in the 80s and 90s in Maui, it's like growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, elsewhere. So I was kind of right. raised on like I Love Lucy and I Dream of Jeannie. All the music <laughs> yeah. uh, was from back there. So I grew up on Boston and all these types of things. It was... Nice. Uh, kind of a surreal experience. And I live in a little town called Makawa, which was on the kind of a, a central east side of the island nearby the road to Hana. And it, it's it's one of those small towns that unless you've been to Maui and you know stuff about Maui, you'd never really think about it. I live sure. nearby Komodo's Donuts, uh, this little donut shop that was amazing, run by this old Filipino guy. Uh, and it was just a great childhood. Uh, you know, I uh, had a lot of fa- family that uh, lived in Hawaii as well. And I got to go to the beach like every two, three times a week, uh, you know, go to Haleakala, go see all the hills. There's a few hills I used to slide down on uh, with, you know, concrete. Uh, you know, you ever do that with a concrete box where you make kind yeah, of an improvised sure, sure, sled sure. and, you know, you slide down that yeah, type of thing. Yeah. So I did a lot of that that type of stuff. And I was homeschooled, so I, I didn't have a chance to interface with the uh, public school system there. Uh, so, or else I'd speak pigeon, you know, because there's like dialects sure. that you kind of pick up when you interface with people. Uh, but it was great, and I lived there until I was about eight. Uh, my dad is uh, Norwegian, and my mom is uh, Italian descent, and so cool. I have a big Italian family on the mom's side, and she's got like five brothers and a sister, and my dad's got two brothers and two sisters, and so uh, both both those cultures blended really well. Uh, my dad uh, originally is from Montana, so I have a huge family up there in Big Timber, Montana, and uh, Miles City, and those that's the kind of the rancher side, you know, they they uh, they raised cattle and they did all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, so every now and then as a kid, I would go and spend some summer times up in uh, up at my grandfather's ranch in Big Timber. And it was a heck of a, a juxtaposition to go from an island living to like the middle of Montana, where you know, one yeah. town is as large as, you know, by, by landmass sure. as the entire island of Maui, which is just crazy. And then uh, in my teens, I, I moved to Colorado and I kind of grew up there. And my formative years were, uh, were in Colorado in the Broomfield area. And it was a lot of fun to enjoy Broomfield and uh, spend time there. Uh, you know, very different as well. Like those winters going from like sure. Hawaii and everything's great to snow. And, you know, it's like, what, what is happening? This is crazy. I want to go back to the island. It's great. Right. On the other hand, it was a perfect time to grow up in Colorado. You know, Colorado hadn't grown too much and it was still kind of a rural state before all the Californians moved in. Uh, so Broomfield in particular was, was kind of idyllic and a perfect place to be a teenager in. Awesome. That's really cool. You have a lot of interesting things that you said. I was just in Maui for the first time. Actually, Hawaii was my 50th and final state. I had never been to Hawaii until about six months ago. So I went to Maui with my wife. So what did you think of Maui? I loved it. We stayed in Wailea. Um, I'm a huge golfer. I grew up in Arizona playing golf my whole life, competitive golf. So I played Kapalua, you know, where the pros play and went around. I actually spent my birthday. I think it was there for my birthday. Yeah, it was there for my birthday uh, in May. So that was not six months ago. It was like, I don't know. Four, four months ago. Loved it. I loved it. There's nothing to not like about Maui. It's, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. I mean, it's, it's almost it's almost too perfect. Like, I like a little rough around the edges, you know? I want some, like, street food and, you know, things going outside, but it's a little... Like, everything closes at four. I was upset about that. I was like, what's going on? Why is everyone well, going to bed so early? <laughs> yeah, in the Wailea area, yeah. But, you know, if you want to go party, go to Front Street. Uh, did you go up to Lahaina? I did go to Lahaina. Yep, it was beautiful. Yeah, there's a lot of places that uh, stay a little open a little longer up there. Yep, nice bars around there and stuff. I didn't go to the road to Hana. I don't know why. Everyone said to do it, but 
Next it's time. a beautiful drive. It's, it takes like yeah. four hours to, to go all the way around. But, uh, you know, Hana, everything closes at three. So, you know, Wailea, everything's at four. And, you know, Kihei's nice. I love the Filipino influence because I've spent two years of my life in that country. My wife's Filipino. So, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time there. And I, I just love that there's so many Filipinos in Hawaii. They're, they're great people. Is uh, she from the North Islands or the South Islands? Uh, she's from the eastern part, actually, uh, called Legazpi, which is a okay. maybe fifth or sixth biggest city in the country. She's from a smaller town outside of that city. It's in the Bicol region. Have you been to the Philippines? Do they sp- yeah, yeah. Do they speak uh, Basayan or Tagalog? No. So she speaks uh, Bicolana, which is her mother tongue, which is a different dialect. Um, but Whoa. it's Tagalog. It's not, Bisa- it's not in the Visayas region. It's in the Tagalog region. But okay. uh, yeah, she's, she, her, her language in the Philippines is the most similar to Spanish in the Philippines. There's a lot of Spanish... Um, overlap as yeah. you probably know but in her in her like the, a lot of the words are the same as Spanish so it's, it's pretty cool yeah I spent a lot of time in Manila and uh, the Clark Freeport zone but uh, I didn't spend a lot of time in the eastern or southern islands you know, so it's uh, a little different and Manila's crazy like you got to get out of out of the city to go to the islands <laughs> so soul destroying traffic I mean the only place I've been that has worse traffic well there's two um, Jakarta yeah, has soul destroying Jakarta yep yep yeah yep. and also uh, Cairo is unusually horrific Cairo's horrible. Yeah. Dhaka, Bangladesh is up there for me. And also Kampala, Uganda is, is one of the worst. Bangkok's pretty bad too, but at least Bangkok, you can take the transportation systems that are pretty good. Yeah. But, yeah. but you're right. You just nailed it. Uh, Manila, uh, Jakarta, Cairo. Those are my top five. I think about yeah. these things all the time. You said Norwegian slash Italian. Let's dive into that. So how do you connect with those? Uh, you've, I'm assuming you've been to both countries. When you're there, do you, do you connect with them in terms of culturally, the cuisine, the, the language? Can you speak any of the languages? Well, I learned a little bit of Italian, but not enough to be competent. And uh, one of these days, I'll speak Norwegian. Um, I, you know, they're very, very different countries, dramatically sure. different countries, Norway and Italy. And the Norwegians were probably the smartest of all the Europeans for how they ran their country. And now they have like a $1.5 trillion sovereign wealth fund and no national debt. So effectively, Norway's retired. You know, the country's set for life and <laughs> sure. they can they can do whatever the hell they want to do. Uh, so you have phenomenal infrastructure there and uh, you, you just have a lot of natural beauty in Norway. And it has a very small population relative to the landmass that they occupy. So those fjords are just incredible. And, you know, I love Tromso, if you've ever been up north. Yes, and I've, I've, chase the Northern north. Lights. And yep. Yeah. Yep. Did you hang out with the, when you were up there, did you hang out with the Sami people? I don't recall that, no. Th- those are the, uh, the the reindeer herders, like the indigenous people. Oh, up north. I did not do that. I actually went to Svalbard from there, so I didn't. I, I just stayed like overnight for a night. I didn't really get to do much in Tromso, but Svalbard was great. Svalbard is very good. Yeah. So uh, one of the cool things you can do dog sledding and reindeer sledding, and then you go out and hang out with the Sami people, and they kind of take you around and show you cool places, and then you chase the aurora borealis. It's a it's a good tourist trap for like three to four days. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the other thing is they have the, the, the farthest north university in the entire world is in Tromso. And they have that beautiful church that has the yep, really steep. Yep. Uh, yep, I saw yeah, so church, I, yeah. So I really enjoy that. Oslo is a lot of fun, too. But, you know, every part of Norway has some tradition or history. And, you know, find that in most Scandinavian countries. But Norway, in my view, is kind of the most attuned with nature. Uh, and the and the people there are quite special. Uh, my family, they were all sheep herders, and cool. you know Norway has this great tradition of the the, the warrior sheep herders. So, you know they they go and just farm, and then when a war comes, they all kill a bunch of people, and then they go back to sheep herding. <laughs> and that's what my uh, my ancestors did when the Nazis invaded. They uh, they just hid in ice caves and killed Nazis for a few years, and. Then when the Nazis left, they they went back to sheep herding and never talked about it again. <laughs> and I was and I was like, was this 
Was this like uncommon? Like, no, everybody in Norway did it. It was like the thing to do, you know, kill, kill some Nazis. I imagine the Nazis didn't know how to navigate ice tunnels too well or ice caves. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, they, the, the Norwegian resistance was very well put together. They like bombed the heavy water plant that was up there and they would hide radio parts in their shoes. And there's actually a really cool museum that kind of shows the experience and lifestyle of what people were going through uh, in Oslo. It's at that castle that's, uh, that's there in I think, yeah. the southern part of the city. So it's a lot of fun. And on the Italian side, that's a that's a whole different thing. That's so much more history because, you know, the Roman sure. Empire and before in uh, every part, there's 20 regions in Italy. So, you know, every part is dramatically different. You know, Sicily mm -hmm. is so different from Umbria and Lazio, very different from up north when you go to Como or the Dolomites region, sure. or these types of things. You know, if you're, if you're taking like a girl for an idyllic you know, date and you really want to, you know, impress her, you know, Tuscany is probably the place and the Dolomites are probably the place to go. Um, if you want to, you know, get a go to a living museum and get in just a few days a pretty good sample of all the history of Italy. Rome is a phenomenal sure. place to go. I was just there, and actually, um, I got a private tour of the Vatican, so I got to go to the Sistine Chapel, and uh, it, no one was in there, which was just super special. Uh, and you know, wow. all throughout the rest of the Vatican, and you normally you go to the Vatican, it's just so damn packed. There's so yeah. many people there, especially uh, so now. Was, this summer has been a freaking nightmare man the airports and everything so hot Mob. too yeah. yeah it's like 100 degrees how'd you get outside. did you go like before it was open is that how you did it yeah yeah, yeah. they did a morning tour very early before it was open and we kind of arranged it and i got to see all the statues and other things and it actually got to take my time you know and and really enjoy each part of the tour and you know i got i'm a sucker for gift shops and so i got some rosaries and other things for the uh, for the family <laughs> we all are really, sucker for gift shops <laughs> yeah you know they're italian catholic you got to do that right so is it your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great that came to the U.S.? How, what generation American are you? Uh, so on both sides is great-grandparents. And so the yep. uh, Norwegian side left uh, in their teenagers. Both of them left in their teens. So on the Italian side, uh, father great-grandfather was from the southern parts of Italy. And then the great-grandmother was from Florence. And, you know, they say, cool. La Roga del Sud, you know, the thieves of the south. And so when they got together, it was kind of a scandal. And they left and went to New York and had eight kids. And my uh, my grandmother wow. was the youngest of the eight. But they all spoke Italian. So that, that part of the family kept that very strong Italian culture. Cool. And they, they kept in that Italian community. Now, if you're Norwegian and you come to America, you're always looking for like a place that looks like Norway. So a lot went to Minnesota, a lot went to Montana. Yep. And yep. so uh, the Steen family, they went to uh, Montana and uh, they, they were in uh, Great Falls and Big Timber and a few other places. And then, you know, big Norwegian family had a lot of kids. My great grandmother, she was a hell of a woman. She had these huge hands and, you know, she was extremely strong and she worked until her mid 80s. You know, she was just uh, 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 an indomitable person and, you know, standard Norwegian stock, you know, a few words, but do an enormous amount of work. She'd get up every morning at 4 a.m., take wow. care of the whole family, take care of everybody, make lefse, which is, uh, did you ever have any lefse when you were in Norway? It doesn't ring a bell. I can't lie. What is that? It's like a, it's like a sweet bread and it's just absolutely delicious. It's a pastry that the, the Norwegians make, but my great grandmother would make it and put it in this glass jar. And she says, you only get one a day. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I try to sneak a second one and she'd catch me and hit my hands with a wooden thing. That's really cool, man. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I also, my great grandparents on both sides came from Europe. Like we're all Jewish, right? So they came from uh, Lithuania, um, present day Belarus and Austria. And they all, um, some of them left way before the war, but some of them left for the war. And, but I can't, I, I never got like any German, I got a couple of Yiddish words that I can speak for my grandma, but 
it was just all English, English. I, I wish that I had like some of those stronger roots, but you know, when they go to America, it's just like everything changes and it's, now we're just a melting pot of, of cultures, which is, it's really fascinating because when I, as I travel more, and I'm sure you have the same thoughts, when you go to a country like Korea, South Korea, or Japan, it's so incredibly homogenous to the point where they all have like one of five last names because they all come from the same dynasty. And their physical features are so similar and just the weight, their mannerisms are the same. And then you go to a country like the US or Australia or the UK and it's just like insanely everything. It's just like, uh, just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. That's just a general comment about America. And it's like, what is American culture? It's just such a newly founded country where people have moved to, I don't know. I feel like you might have a comment or two on that. Yeah, I mean, you can be anybody in America, and that's what makes America so special and so magical. There's no, uh, you know, cultural legacy that you're forced to abide right. to. Uh, you know, actually, I, I did the 23andMe uh, not too long ago, and I, I was kind of curious, like, what, what's the genetic makeup and who banged who back in Europe and so <laughs> forth. So there's some German and some French and some Italian and Norwegian, but then I found out I'm 0.2% Ashkenazi Jew. Oh, nice. 0.2%. So, yeah, 0.2%. So I was in Israel the other day, and, um, and they asked, Are you, you're Jewish, right? I said, I'm not Jewish. They said, well, come on. Did you ever do a blood test? I said, I 0.2%. They said, well, it, with the billionaire adjustment, I think we could take you. Welcome to the tribes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, I'll call you later, okay? We'll do the That's right hilarious. thing return. You, you um, know, but, with that beard, you could pass as a rabbi, man. I'm sure exactly. They, I yeah. went to Masada, you know, and I saw the, the, the rabbi up there. He, he wrote my name in Hebrew. He's like, you're, you're part, you're, you're, you can be part of this. Um, but uh, I've been to South Korea and to Japan as well. I used to live in Japan. I was in Osaka. I was out in um, Homachi is uh, where I was at. And, and I spent a lot of time in Namba, the, uh, the restaurant district. I tell you, that is one of the most fun cities you could ever in your 20s spend time in. I mean, you go down the arcade and you go into Namba. You see, did you see the giant crab? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the giant, yeah. yeah, the Glico man and the crab. But, you know, that literally that restaurant district, speaking of Hawaii, everything closes at four. Well, nothing closes in Namba. Yeah. It stays open yeah. like 24-7. Yeah. So I have some very fond memories of going to Space Station, which was like a video game themed bar and playing uh, Super Mario World until like four o'clock in the morning and getting really drunk and then wandering through the streets of Namba, trying to decide which one of the 26 ramen shops to, uh, to eat gyoza and ramen at. And, you know, they have those vending machines where you put in the, the money and then you push a button and a ticket comes out and you hand it to the guy. Yeah. So you don't have to speak Japanese or anything. So I yeah. kind of memorized all of the kanji for, um, for like um, pork and the different types of uh, ramen. So I could order the teriyaki ramen versus other ramens, you know, the soy ramen and so forth. Uh, so, you know, be there kind of drunkenly staring at Japanese symbols, be like, ah, ah, okay, ah, and go back to my Airbnb. And God, I had so much fun. I have very similar experience. I lived and taught English in the Seoul for two years after college. So actually, I studied abroad in Prague, which is where I am now. I'm, I'm in Prague. Mm -hmm. I'm actually in an apartment. You can see there's a picture of Prague behind me. Um, and then I moved to Korea for two years after college and, and I, I loved it. S same experience as you. Everything's open 24 hours, partying every night, drinking soju, which is kind of like sake, I'm sure you know, and <laughs> going out. I, the only difference in your story than my story was there's not really vending machines in Korea. It's, it's such a Japanese thing, the vending machines. Yeah. I don't know why. They never yeah. made their way across to Korea. No, what, but, did um, you ever go to that uh, robot um the robot place in was it Rapongi in Tokyo where the robots yep, fight I have each a, other? There's a video on YouTube at the, oh, that I went no to the ro robot restaurant. That place is so cool. It's such a fire hazard too. I was like sitting there yeah, yeah. and I was like, man, if these robots catch fire, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> there's no way I'm surviving this. 
<laughs> yeah, that's 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 a cool place. Rapongi said, I love Rapongi. Man, I miss Asia. You know, I, I spent like seven years in Asia and then when COVID hit, I haven't been back since then. I lived in Korea, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand over a seven year span, you know, basing myself there, traveling in and out. And then COVID hit right. and we went to the US and then, you know, I managed to travel to like some 30 countries since the pandemic hit, but I'm craving to go back to Japan, Philippines, Taiwan. What, what did you think of um, Ho Chi Minh? Ho Chi Minh's great. I, I actually lived in Hanoi, not Ho Chi Minh. Uh, which is, it's funny because Vietnam, you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of a small country, but it's, it's really long north and south. It takes two and a half hours to fly from north to south. So it's like Seattle to LA distance and it's wildly different. I've been to Saigon four times, all for kind of weekend trips, but I've spent six months in Hanoi. So wow. I prefer Hanoi a lot more. It's just more cozy, more intimate, the, all the little side streets and little um, cafes everywhere and the, the old, the beautiful French church there. And the climate is like in the winter months in Hanoi, you need to wear like a coat. I mean, it's probably at the, at the worst, it gets down in the 40s, but it's probably in the 50s right. at night, which is kind of cool to be in, in in Southeast Asia, which where everywhere is blistering hot everywhere, uh, almost everywhere. But in this little place in northern Vietnam, it's cold. I think that's I think that was cool. Have you been to Hanoi? Uh, I haven't been to Hanoi, but I have been to Ho Chi Minh. And what blew my mind was, you know, I, I arrived and you get off the out of the airport. You look to your left, you see like, uh, was it Pizza Hut? And then you look to the right, you see Popeye's chicken. You're like, wait a minute, I thought we lost this war. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then you go to the city and it's like the most capitalist place I've ever been. It, it starts raining it really and then out of nowhere, all these people show up to sell you umbrellas. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. just yes. so crazy. The umbrella thing, like they yeah. wait for it. And like within seconds, there's like 10 guys offering you an umbrella. Yeah, and, and it was like, where the fuck did all these umbrellas just come from? You know, and yeah. the whole streets They're are filled end to end with mopeds, too. So it's it's a lot of fun to drive uh, you know, mopeds there. So so listen, Charles, I could talk to you about travel for three more hours. This has been great. But I want to dig a little bit deeper into your, your story in Web3. So obviously sure. you've you've told it a lot in many different ways, but if we can kind of just try to condense it down, were you always into computers and tech and innovation as a kid? I mean, in Hawaii or in Japan as in your 20s, or run me through your inspiration of how you got into, into the scene. And, and obviously, you know, about 10 years ago um, when you kind of started, or probably longer than 10 years ago, when you really started your journey um, with Ethereum and Cardano. Uh, just go ahead and, and kind of share your story. Yeah, you know, I, I, my dad's a doctor and my grandfather was a doctor. Uh, so the family tradition was medicine. And I always imagined when I was, you know, growing up, I'd end up being a surgeon or something like that. And so I thought a lot about uh, that part. But I was at the same time quite interested in programming and quite interested in mathematics and these things. And I'd read little math books and, you know, I did a lot of uh, self-programming. Like I had this little book on basic and I had, uh, I wrote some code on the family um, Intel 46 computer and I got stuff to work in DOS and that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I actually, when I was a kid, patched one of the games. You ever played Catacomb 3D? I have not, no. It's, like, it's a very old DOS game and I had to write a patch for it because it didn't work with my particular computer, but there was a quick and easy fix and these were like in the the pre-easy accessible internet days for, for me sure. as a kid. But we got it fixed. And so th that was always an inspiration, but it, I always imagined it was like a side hustle. And I figured, okay, that's, that's the fun stuff, but the real stuff is medicine. I should do that. And then as I got older, it became very apparent that, you know, I probably should do something in a more technical field, like be an engineer or be a mathematician or be a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, and I pursued the mathematics side for quite a bit of time, but um, the problem is I didn't want to be a professor. And I was trying to figure out, well, where's a nice intersection of things that I'm interested in? So I really liked uh, number theory and cryptography. You know, I, I really liked 
uh, programming, I really liked economics and monetary policy. In fact, I was a member of the Ron Paul campaign. I volunteered oh, cool. in 2007. So he was talking all about sound money and Austrian economics and these things. And that was well before Bitcoin. Bitcoin came out yeah. in 2009. Uh, so I, I kind of got bit by the gold bug, like all these other guys that ended up going into the uh, space, like, um, uh, you know, David Bailey or, uh, you know, Eric Voorhees uh, or, you know, so forth. So uh, when Bitcoin came out, I first heard about it in around 2010. I think it was on Slashdot. And uh, I said, boy, that's really interesting. It's probably not going to work. But um, I should I should mine some. So I set up a mining rig and I got all these uh, AMD, I think or 5850s in Crossfire. And I got right. a bunch of coins there and I bought some and I actually had a Mt. Gox account and all these things. Do you and remember buying your first Bitcoin, like the process? I do. I do. It was actually quite easy. I wired money from PayPal to Mel Cox. And that, that nice. looks so, so against the end user license agreement. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it is what it is. It was a long time ago. Uh, so, you know, I, I really enjoyed the early days of Bitcoin because there was no, really everything was worthless. No one really cared too much about it. Uh, and the community was super small. You could talk to everybody. So I talked to Andreas Anathanopoulos and Roger Ver and all of these cool. OGs. Mike Hearn was another. Gavin Andreessen was uh, a big guy. He was one of the core developers. And, you know, everybody just hung out on Bitcoin talk and it was a pretty laid back environment. And, you know, Satoshi had just left right when I, I got started. So I didn't have a chance to interact with him. Uh, but I did have a chance to interact directly with a lot of the people that were kind of the, the core people. And uh, I very quickly started saying, well, it's all fine and dandy, but the problem that Bitcoin has is it doesn't have programmability. And, you know, you, if, if this thing is going to be real, it's going to need some mechanisms like a value-stable token. So you need something that's pegged to the dollar, or else you can't use it for sure. commercial transactions. It's too slow to be used as a payment system. You can't do microtransactions. You can't do pull payments and so forth. So I started getting interested in the altcoin space. Uh, but the problem with that juncture is there was really no real good altcoins. There were things like Feathercoin and Litecoin and Namecoin and these types of things. But they were all is just derivations. Yeah, this was 2011, 2012, and they were all okay. just like derivations of Bitcoin. So they would then fork from it. They have their own monetary policy, these types of things. But at the end of the day, it's still proof of work. Although there was a very innovative coin that was well ahead of its time. It was called PeerCoin, P-E-E-R coin, and it was a hybrid proof of work, proof of stake. And it was made by an anonymous developer. Uh, and they say, oh, we're the green coin. Now, the consensus algorithm didn't really work very well, but it was really the first time somebody had done something markedly and materially different from, uh, mm -hmm. from Bitcoin. So I didn't take it too seriously until after the <laughs> Cypriot crisis, when uh, the banks in Cyprus uh, started taking money from the people. And then Bitcoin went from nothing to like $250. And then it created all this hype and excitement around Bitcoin. It was really the first major bull run that we had. Because, you know, it was, sure. it was a dollar, it went to $30, it went down to $4, but then it stagnated yeah. at $4 for a little while and nobody really cared. When it went to 250, then suddenly I realized, well, it's gotten the network effect. It's going to be real. You know, I got to get in and do something. So I joined the Bitcoin Foundation and I was the founding chairman of the education committee. And uh, basically that gave me a chance to kind of talk to all the people and get to know everybody. Um, and I created a class uh, that I gave for free out on Udemy called Bitcoin or how I learned to stop worrying and love crypto. I love that. Yeah. I love that you did that for free. That's, that's uh, really and I cool. got I got over seventy thousand students uh, from that class. And one of my students was this venture capitalist from China named Li Shalao. And he emailed me and said, "Hey, um, I'd like to give you money to start a business." And I was like, "Ah, oh, it's a Nigerian print scam. Okay." And, <laughs> and, and like, and he's like, "No, I'm legit. I promise you." And, and he actually convinced me. And I said, "Okay." And he turned. Sure enough, he did. And 
give me a few hundred thousand dollars to start a company. And I, and he asked, well, what do you think are the, the biggest problems of crypto? And I said, I'm going to crowdsource it. So uh, on Bitcoin Talk, I created a thread called Project Invictus. Uh, and basically I asked, what do you guys think are the biggest issues of crypto? And uh, the, the, the consent, the, I got a bimodal distribution of responses. Some people said exchanges, because everybody at the time was worried about Mt. Gox, which eventually sure. did collapse that year. And then the other group of people said value stable currencies. So I said, can we put both of them together somehow? And uh, I eventually launched a project called BitShares with Dan Larimer. And BitShares was well ahead of its time. It was a proof of stake cryptocurrency uh, that had a DEX and a stablecoin back in 2013. Wow. I mean, it's like, whoa, you know, we were, so, we were too far ahead. So the project ultimately didn't really succeed. Uh, but it, it was quite innovative and it, it really moved the conversation. And on the ashes of that, I ended up meeting Anthony DiOrio uh, through my card, uh, the Bitcoin Foundation connection because he was running the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada at the time. And he said, hey, do you have any educational materials? And then I said, sure. And we were talking about that. And it's like a little side thing. He's like, oh, by the way, there's this young kid that keeps coming to the uh, meetups. And he's got this white paper. Can you read the white paper and let me know what you think of it? And I said, sure. What's his name? Said, oh, his name is Vitalik. I think he's Russian. <laughs> And the nice. white paper is called Ethereum. And I was like, oh, okay. So I read the Ethereum paper. And How many people knew that the word Ethereum existed when you read that paper? Okay. So uh, I was the fifth person that Vitalik shared the paper with. Uh, wow. So it was Vitalik, Mihai, Alicia, uh, Amir, Shetrit, uh, uh, Anthony, and then myself. And then about two weeks after I came in, uh, he created a Skype group. And then that's where, um, what's his name, uh, Gavin Wood and uh, Jeff Wilchie mm -hmm. and others came in and then uh, Anthony brought in Joe Lubin because Joe had some connections in Toronto and they kind of knew each other through that. So it was very small days and very humble days. And after about a month of meetings, I said, Hey, you know, we really should meet up and, you know, have a conversation. So uh, Anthony rented a beach house in Miami in January of 2014. And then we all aggregated there and decided that we'd actually build a cryptocurrency and launch it. So I spent six months as kind of the closest thing that group wow. had to a CEO very stressful time and there was too many chiefs not enough indians uh you know there's uh you know not sure. too many cooks in the kitchen uh yeah. and so uh and so eventually vitalik had to make a decision uh of what to do with it and so he consolidated around the tech side so all the business side kind of got liquidated so amir and i got pushed out in june and then uh, later on anthony left and joe left and joe started consensus and anthony started decentral and uh amir has make buku money trading tons of different things and gavin created uh you know parody labs and you know he's got uh, polka dot now and oh, i created nice. input output and you know i got cardano and so all seven of the eight founders are gone now and the only one left is uh, vitalik and everybody's gone on to go do something else whether it be uh, game development or social media or you know other cryptocurrencies so you got pushed out after those six months if i understood correctly and then did Cardano come right away or was there a, like a, a period of time where you were trying to figure out well, what's going on? Or? I, I was kind of owing too. you know, I had bit shares in Ethereum, but it wasn't working out for me. And I was like, man, should I really be in this crash? Maybe I should just be a mechanic and fix cars or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Go back to school or something. Who knows? You know, maybe that, maybe that professor thing will work out after all. <laughs> um, but uh, I took six months off and then uh, my secretary uh, who I worked with at Ethereum had all these contacts in Japan. And he called me up and he said, hey, these guys in Japan want to meet you. And then I said, well, if you pay for the plane ticket, I'll, I'll come meet them. <laughs> so that got me back in the game. And uh, I eventually partnered with them and built Cardano. And, you know, it's been now almost eight years and uh, you know, a hell of a journey. 72 countries later and 
Now I got a multi-billion dollar company with, uh, you know, 700 people at it. And Cardano has 3 million people in the ecosystem and we've written 150 academic papers. So it was just a wild ride. Absolutely how how does that make you feel that within about seven, seven to eight years, the sentence that you just said is mind blowing. So how does it feel that you, you accomplish that in such a sh short time? Well, it's a heck of a lot of luck of being in the right place in the right time and just That's being true. fortunate enough to have great people. But, you know, the other side of it is that we kept to our principles the entire way. You know, I said, well, if I'm going to go do this, I got to do it right. So we're going to use you know, real science and we're going to actually write papers the right way and uh, build protocols the right way. And it kept us out of an enormous amount of trouble. Like, you know, we never sure. really got a major hack or a protocol failure. We were a little slow to market and missed a few things here and there, but it did allow us to build a community on bedrock and in many ways get the best ideas. So it was, uh, it's humbling as hell. Uh, and it's a still surreal experience when you think about it. And uh, just to reflect and look back at all the people I've met, I mean, I now regularly meet heads of state. Uh, this weekend, I was at my ranch and Snoop Dogg's son shot a music video with me. Really? I mean, it's, yeah, champ. It's, it's just like, okay, I guess this is life now, you know? And, and uh, I just do some of the craziest things on a, on a regular basis. And uh, it's, it's still somehow surreal. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel real. It feels like a long, long dream upon which I can't wake up from. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, the responsibility of, of having millions of people uh, right. believe in you, like running into people that have tattooed their face on their, their body, my face on their body. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. That's wild, uh, man. You know, you know and, or, the, or the logo, or they've named their kids after, uh, after uh, Ada, or, you know, or these things. Then you say, okay, well, the hopes and dreams of all these people um, are in some way connected to whether I work hard. And right. I, I do a good job. And that's a new experience. You do, you're not prepared for that as a person. There's, there's no school you go to that says, okay, now you're ready. I mean, I even have a picture of like the tattoo. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that just messed that's, up? That's just freaking mind blowing, man. So you see these kinds of things and they send them to you and they're like, yeah, what do you think? You know, okay. Um, Dude, that's on your hope forever, I, bro. <laughs> I know. I was like, I hope I don't fuck up, man. Serial killer Charles is the next headline. I'm just kidding. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I, I can kind of, on a different level, I can relate in terms of, like, acknowledgeability because I've had over 6 billion views on my videos on YouTube, and I've got a community of 11 million followers. So yeah. everywhere I go in the streets, people are like, oh, my God, like, I came to Prague because of your video, and it's so, I went to this bar because you loved it, and thank you for recommending it. And it's still, every time that happens, I'm just like, I don't know what to say. I'm like, Thank you. Like I, I just, I've just been creating content for seven years and throwing it on the internet. And obviously, as time goes on, you get better and better at telling right. stories. And it's such a strange feeling. I still feel like it's a dream. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a surreal experience. Fame is so hard to be recognized. You go place after place, and people know who you are, and you don't know who they are. And you know, it's instantly yeah. a, a strange, sta strange dynamic. Even in places like Yemen, where I was a year and a half ago, or right before COVID, two years ago. And this little kid comes running on the street. He's like, oh my God, I love your videos. And I didn't find an internet connection the whole time in Yemen. So I'm thinking, and, and phone signals don't really work. So I'm like, how, like, wh where did he, I don't, so yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. That's crazy. So are you still innovating? And are you still like, I mean, I know the answer to that is yes, but how much in the grind are you these days? Or what, what is a typical day in the life of Charles look like? Well, you know, I have four companies now, so I've diversified quite a bit. So I still have input output and we innovate like crazy. We've written 150 academic papers. We have many more on the way. In fact, I'm heading to Santa Barbara here this weekend to nice. uh, 
go to one of the largest academic conferences in the world for cryptography because we just solved a major problem. It's called useful proof of work. Uh, so, so there we actually found a way to do proof of work, but instead of wasted computation, you're actually solving real life problems. And that was a problem that when I first started in the cryptocurrency space, uh, everybody thought was impossible. So it's so cool to be able to still kind of surprise people and, and figure out new ways of doing things. Uh, and obviously we did Cardano and we're still working very aggressively on it. We have some unannounced and unreleased things that, that are super cool in the wallet space and identity space and other crypto nice. stuff. Uh, but the other three companies are you know, very different. So I own a biotechnology company and we do anti-aging regenerative medicine. And I run that with my nice. dad and brother. So I finally got to work with my dad and brother and, you know, they're both doctors. And so it's a very different industry and we're starting on the health and wellness side. So we've been building a clinic now for the, for a little while. In fact, I even have a picture of it. I was actually just going over architectural diagrams and this is what the outside looks like. Beautiful. Where is that? I, it's going to be in Gillette, Wyoming. Uh, and the nice. health and wellness center is going to do everything from hyperbaric medicine to genomic medicine. So when you come in, we, we fully sequence your genome. We take extensive labs. We look at the whole microbiome. We take a huge history, a full body MRI. You know, we do a whole bunch of functional tests and, uh, and really get to understand you as a person. And then we look at a 360 plan of how do we get you into a more optimal state of health. So there's some functional medicine stuff you can do, lifestyle medicine stuff you do, diet and exercise you can do, and some interventions. Like, for example, hyperbaric chambers are just absolutely extraordinary. They're as close to magic as you can get. People think of them like diving medicine. Oh, I, I get the bends and then I need to sit in it for a while to recover from nitrogen narcosis. But it turns out it actually can heal wounds and regenerate nerves and wow. be used to treat TBIs and all kinds of things. It's absolutely extraordinary. And it's an underappreciated area of medicine, but it's, you can layer it with other therapies. And so you can give sure. people a bunch of anti-aging and regenerative medicine drugs. So you can give them things you know, like metformin and rhabdomyosin, which have been shown to be pretty effective at slowing down aging. You, and we're also looking at exosomes and, uh, and other things. So we're, we're kind of aggregating a center of excellence with lots of doctors and PhDs and going through all the medical literature and things like what Dave Asprey's doing and Dave Sinclair is doing and other people's labs and trying to get a good sense of what is the state of the art and then have a nice fertile area to test that state of the art and get to a point where we have protocols that massively improve people's health and really, uh, really accelerate those things. Uh, now, long term, uh, the goal would be then investing some of the returns into tissue engineering and then saying, can we take stem cells that we harvest from people and use it to regrow uh, organs and skin and other tissue types? And so it's a great industry to be in is really at the forefront. It's really cool. You get to work with your father, you know, and yeah. things like that. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and he spent almost 40 years as an internist. And so, you know, medicine has a way of disenfranchising people. And that's what tells you that. The industry is deeply unhealthy and sick. And if you come in as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed doctor and you're very excited to be, you know, uh, caring for people, and then by the end of your career you can't wait to retire and you say this is horrible, I say I got a false bill of goods. It, that tells you the entire industry is deeply sick. Sure. So we want to really look into how can you do concierge and direct primary care and have a more intimate relationship with the patient than a, than a proxied one with insurance in the middle. Uh, so we're figuring that out, and it's it's really a cool capstone for his career. And my brother is uh, certainly feeling the same fatigue from the time that he was in, uh, and uh, we're 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 getting there. Now the other two businesses, um, I have a synthetic biology business, and uh, what it does is it genetically engineers plants, and it makes the plants glow in the dark. So uh, <laughs> so it's uh, cool. bioluminescence, and that's so fucking cool. And there's all kinds of really crazy things that you can do with it, and that's kind of running in silent mode for now. Uh, but we should be able to announce a few things at some point. 
And then uh, the fourth company is my ranch. And I also own some restaurants. And my ranch is uh, in, in Wheatland, and I raise bison. So I got over 500 oh, American buffalo. Dude, are you serious? Yeah, just running is around. It, it's it, in Colorado? You no, know, it's in Wyoming. Oh, you're in Wyoming right now. Are you at the ranch? Well, no, no, no. I have a farm in Colorado and a ranch in uh, Wyoming. Okay. So got the it, farm got is it. just outside of Boulder, and then the, the ranch is in Wheatland, Wyoming, which is How a small town. How often are you at that ranch? I try to go up every weekend. In fact, that's where we shot the music video. And uh, that's just that's something I would love to document at, at any future date, you know. Um, but that's a story that I would love to tell. That's really cool, man. Uh, you can come up anytime you want, man. And actually, uh, I, I I hired uh, the, one of the first things I did because I wanted to know the history of the ranch is I hired a uh, historian to actually write a book, uh, Mark cool. Young. And so he's been uh, he's been chipping away at it for the last year, and we're about fifty percent done, give or take. So the the story of Hoskinson Ranch will uh, will be told at some point. And I'll give you a copy of the book. And it starts with like Paleolithic history because it was used for flint crafting and all kinds of things uh, by ancient natives. So cool. And, uh, you know, and eventually uh, uh, the Calvary took over and there were big Calvary battles that were on the land. And part of the Oregon Trail goes through there. And it's just nuts the amount of history Dude. that that uh, that ranch how has. How big is it? It's 11,000 acres. What? Yeah. How do you get there? Do you fly? I mean, is there do you uh, drive? Just drive. It's right off I-25. Those are some of my bison. Yeah. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Man, I would love to come out. We'll try to coordinate something. I would love to shoot, tell that that story. And sounds really inspiring, man. That's super cool. You're living your best life, bro. Yeah, there's a lot of shit going on, right? You know, there's uh, <laughs> so there's the biotech stuff and then the synthetic biology How's, stuff. And, you seem you know. like an extremely unstressed person, but are you actually stressed? Not at all. Not at all. You know, I, I spent a long time doing some meditation stuff because I was super fucking stressed when I started all of this and it got so bad it was affecting my health. And I said, you know, I need yeah. to make some changes. And so I, I read some books from John Kabat-Zinn and then I went to a week-long silent meditation retreat. And I was it was one of those where you weren't sure if it was a prison camp or a meditation retreat. Yeah. You know, you're just yeah. like on the fence. You could see it both ways because you weren't allowed to, to talk that. to each yeah. other. You can't look at each yeah. other. Yeah. I, didn't eat, I didn't eat for four and a half did, days. And did then you I was like it? I'm, I've been thinking about that. Oh, I wrote a whole Good. blog post about it. It was amazing. Uh, I, it was a transformative experience, and it was uh, a lot of fun, but it was one of the hardest things I ever did because, you know, if you can't speak for a week and you're left to your thoughts, I had no cell phone, no nothing. Can you draw? Was, what, what do you no, do? You no, you just, just think. That's it. You can't, you, can't, you can't journal. You can't read. You just, you're just silent, and, you know, and I wasn't eating. And you know, also I went outside and meditated in the mornings in the snow because it was up in the mountains. And so you're just like out there, and, you know, negative 10 while the wind is blowing on you and you're sitting in snow with shorts on. And it was, uh, it was an experience, man. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I learned these things, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of neurofeedback as well. And, you know, what that's allowed me to do is, is not only gain a lot of focus and clarity, but also it gave me a lot of coping mechanisms and techniques to kind of de-stress when I get sure. way too stressed and it's enabled me to relax quite a bit. I'm stressed all the time, man. I'm going to, you know, Lieberland this weekend, you know, and going to uh, Portugal to shoot another video. And there's a lot of pressure on my shoulders to deliver content and, and just keeps going, keeps going. And I love it on one hand, but on the other hand, it's an extremely stressful lifestyle. I'm 31, so I'm still kind of living in the thick of it, but I, I, I admire your, you know, your four businesses, you've created a multi-billion dollar, you know, so many things going on, but you just, I love the humbleness and, and the way that you're just able to kind of detox from all of it. So that's something that I hope to reach. Maybe I have to do one of those retreats to get there. Well, whatever you do, I mean, I think the most important thing is the digital detox. So just get your cell phone, put it in a safe and go somewhere for a week and have no means of contacting you unless it's an absolute emergency. 
Uh, you know, maybe Alaska or someplace like that. There's a lot of great remote places in the United States that you can go to or abroad, as you know. Sure. Um, and just being away from that for a week, you, the first two, three days are super hard. But then after that, you just reach this peace and your dopamine levels properly reset. And you feel like, right. wow, like, how did I ever live the other way? This, this is this is crazy. So I go through those periods of cleansing. I also do a lot of fasting and that helps a lot. Like daily fasting? Yeah, I try to do intermittent fasting like 16-8 uh, where I don't eat for 16 hours and then I eat for 8. And uh, sometimes I do extended fast. My record is 11 days. So I really? didn't eat anything for 11 days. Yeah, that was tough. Just um, because you thought it would be a cool experience? or <laughs> yeah, Well, it helps. It's a complete reset. It helps reset your microbiome. It heals your gut. Uh, so all the things that irritate it, it takes about two weeks to heal up. Um, you purge a lot of toxins inside the body and... It's tough though, you know, you have to be careful with for refeeding syndrome and uh, you know, you yeah. have to make sure that uh, you drink plenty of water during that time period. You just drink water and nothing else for 11 days. Yeah, water and fasting salts. What does that mean? It's like salt J just you put in the water? So just water. Yeah, potassium and magnesium and sodium and so forth and you mix it together so you don't die when you start refeeding. Uh, you know, there's a guy, uh, there's a doctor who studies it. His name's Dr. Fung. He's a nephrologist and he, he wrote a lot of books on the science of fasting and, and these things. Uh, but the long and the short is, you know, your, your body can do this and it's designed to fast because, you know, we evolved where food was scarce. And so we have times right. where you can eat a lot and it's stored that and other times you go weeks without stable food. So humans can easily survive this, but uh, you have to be a little careful metabolically. Yeah, what's nice is if you have insulin sensitivity or you're a lot very overweight, you have a lot of headroom. In fact, the right. longest fast ever recorded was Angus Barbary. Do you know how long he fasted for? I'm going to guess four months. No, 384 days. That's a year, a little over a year. Really? Yeah. Was he really big? He was over 400 pounds. If you Google, you can see like the before and after. It's extraordinary. What's the name? Angus Barbary. Yeah. He's from Scotland and he got really sick and got hospitalized. And then he could, he stopped eating for a while. And he asked his doctor, how long can I go? And wow. he said, well, we can do an experiment. And uh, Angus, uh, Angus was like, sure, let's do it. And they, they ended up watching him for over a year. And then they wrote a paper about it after, uh, after he uh, uh, finished the fast. Isn't that crazy? Before and after 382 days. You're full of information trials. Hey, this has been a really great chat. I'm not going to keep you longer than an hour, but Hey, I, I would love to see you again soon, um, whether it's Wyoming or Colorado or wherever. I'll be in Europe and traveling for the next few months, and then I'll be in the U.S. for like October, November, December, January. So hopefully we can make it work. All right. Thank you, Drew. It'd be great to see you anytime. I'd love to have you by the ranch, and we can eat some good bison. Absolutely, man. Charles, you're the man. Really appreciate it. And I'll see you in Wyoming soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast episode. If you feel inspired by this conversation, please share it with somebody who would enjoy listening. And if you're here for the first time, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave a review. Every week, I'm going to be looking through them and highlighting my favorite one. And with that all being said, I will see you guys next week.